Hi. Hello, Adam. How are you? How are you? I'm Fine, good. Thank you. How is the situation? Sorry, what did you say? How's this? How's the situation in your city? It's not so bad. We have uh, 30 to 40 ventilated COVID patients and maybe another 50 or 60 in the hospital, but we have plenty of capacity. Um, so we're talking about resuming elective cases um, on Monday. I would um, say. Yeah. How about, how about in Cairo? How are things? Yes, it's, um, you know, it's, um, it's starting. We didn't reach the peak of the curve now, until now. We hope that we not reach this peak. Um, but uh, we are in um, a very good situation when compared to uh, USA and Italy. Good. I'm yeah. glad. So I think now we have the, uh, the attendees is coming. Yeah, we can wait. I mean, we're actually early, uh, so we can wait a few minutes to let people uh, yeah. join in. And thank how you many for... are you? How many are you expecting? Um, uh, till now, we have about one hundred something, one hundred fifty uh, or one hundred fifty uh, something. Awesome! That's really yeah. fantastic. Good for you. And thank you. Let me introduce one friend of us, Dr. Ali Alaraj. I know him very well. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, so, I assume I assume he's in Chicago, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, hello, Dr. Ali. Hey guys, how are you doing? Oh, fine. Well, thank how you, Adam, you? for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure. How, how are things in Chicago, Ali? Well, we're still uh, on the, uh, up, up on the curve, on the upslope of the curve. We haven't plateaued yet. So uh, uh, things are not out of control. We, we had to do a lot of uh, uh, restructuring within the hospital. We, we converted the medical ICU into a COVID unit, COVID ICU. We gave half of our renewal ICU, and now it became the medical non-COVID ICU. And the pediatric ICU became the another COVID ICU. And uh, we shut down all the elective cases. We're just doing only emergencies. Uh, for about a two, three weeks, uh, we did not have much strokes or hemorrhages at all, like very, very few. Now, people starts to come. I think people were shy from just waiting home uh, and, uh, and getting worse. We have a... a, a Symptomatic third nerve palsy from a peak amyurism. The patient waited home for five days before coming to the hospital. So um, strokes that became hemorrhagic transformation, waited home. So there's a lot of that. Uh, I think there's a lot of fear from people coming to the hospital. So, Yes, it's interesting. Uh, Mike Levitt from Seattle uh, expressed the same situation, that they're seeing patients later and that they saw a decrease in patients who met criteria for doing a mechanical thrombectomy. Pascal Jabor in Philadelphia and, and Jay Mako and the Sinai group are saying the opposite. So Jay has made a lot of press about the fact that in the first two weeks of their COVID situation, 
he saw 32 mechanical thrombectomies and some of those patients were young, um, several of them in their 40s. And so there's been this question raised about whether COVID patients are um, at a higher risk of stroke. We've known for a long time that when patients have a bad pneumonia and septicemia, that they, they get into a DIC type situation and they, they, are, they can coagulate. Um, uh, and I don't know, because the COVID-19 sneaks up on people, people are, are silently becoming hypoxic at home and not realizing they're hypoxic for a long time. I don't know if they're just sicker than they realize and, and the first presentation is stroke, um, but Jay at least it seems to be implying that maybe there's some other biochemical rationale, something about the coronavirus that's different. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know of something specific about coronaviruses that would affect the endothelium or clots, but uh, it's been interesting to watch these two competing uh, ideas develop. Either patients are not coming in as much because they're afraid or strokes have gone up because the coronavirus causes clotting. Ali, do you have any opinions on that? So what I've heard is that the cytokine surge, surge sometimes can cause endothelial injury when it's really massive. So uh, by itself, the disease is hypercoagulable. So there's a very increased high risk of thrombotic complications. We're seeing that in our patient population, there's a lot of DVTs, PEs in our patients. So there is uh, a hypercoagulable state per se, and there's a possible cytokine injury itself to the endothelium that might be also contributing to, to the increased risk of strokes. I think why some people are seeing a surge and people are not seeing a surge, I think it's a, it's a problem of triaging patients. I think if you have a healthcare system that is allowing patients to be triaged to the hospitals in a timely manner, uh, then probably you are seeing those patients like Philadelphia and New York. And for us, uh, thrombectomies remain like same to a certain degree, but the hemorrhages dropped significantly. Uh, so because the, the hospital that we provide uh, telestroke for them, uh, we continue to do the same type of work. So mm -hmm. the thrombectomies you know, did not really uh, change significantly, but the hemorrhages definitely dropped significantly. Uh, so I, I think if you have a healthcare system in the community that allows patients to be triaged, then you're probably going to pick more of those. But if you have a healthcare system in suburbs where people are going to stay home or nursing homes that are shy from calling 911, then you're not going to see those patients. I, I think you could see it from different perspectives. That's exactly, very well said. Exactly, this is exactly this is the situation in our country because um, most of the care system in our country is now uh, shifted to the care of the COVID patient. And uh, most of the hospital denying to have the, um, to run the stroke code and workflow in, uh, in their system. And also most of the patient um, have the same shy to present himself uh, as early as possible to the uh, stroke surface. So um, during the past two weeks, two, uh, two months, we have uh, a dramatic drop in the uh, stroke patient uh, treatment in our country. Hmm. Oh, I think now we can start because of okay. the time. Yeah. So sure. first of all, let me introduce our esteemed guest uh, uh, who uh, definitely needs no introduction, but uh, for uh, 
who might uh, not know, uh, Professor Adam Arthur is one of the most talented, gifted, and uh, uh, well-famous uh, uh, endovascular neurosurgeon across the globe. Uh, he is uh, ex-president of the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery, uh, and he was one uh, from uh, neurosurgeons uh, to develop uh, basic practice in uh, post-open uh, cerebrovascular surgery and endovascular surgery. Um, uh, hello, Adam. Uh, and uh, let me also introduce the panelists, our panelists, uh, two of the uh, most famous uh, endovascular uh, neurosurgeons and uh, board members of uh, Mina Sino uh, in our region, Dr. Tamer Hassan from Alexandria. Hello, Dr. Hi. Tamer. Hello, hello Adam. Mohammed Ala from uh, Ain Shams Cairo. Hello, Dr. Mohammed. Hi, Sam. Hello. So we will start now with Prof Professor Adam, please. Sure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, guys, uh, I'm, uh, I've got the chat open, so if I say something stupid or you have a question, please don't hesitate to uh, write it and I'll, I'll try to answer it. Uh, let's see if I'll share my screen. Uh, see if this will work. Okay. All right, so can you guys see that okay? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. All right, so uh, at Osama's uh, suggestion, I've got two separate talks. Uh, the first is about intracellular flow disruption. Uh, the web device, as you know, is at the moment really the only widely available intracellular flow disruptor, but uh, I think it's interesting to consider theoretically how that device may work and, and what we can do to uh, lower the chance of having a complication or a recurrence with using it. So in this talk, I'm going to start with the theory of, of the development of the therapy and then go over some of the evidence we have from the Webbit study, which we ran uh, internationally, but with mostly centers in the US, and then talk about you know, some nuts and bolts, you know, good technique uh, that avoids problems. So I like uh, being evidence-based. And we have very good evidence for the superiority of endovascular treatment uh, over open vascular treatment for aneurysms that could be treated either way. Um, the data essentially suggest that the magnitude of the advantage that you have if you can treat someone endovascularly in saving them for death or disability over clipping them is about the same as the advantage of clipping them over just leaving their aneurysm alone. And this is for ruptured aneurysm. So it's a very robust effect. Um, and uh, Andy Molyneux, I think, has done uh, tremendous service to our field by not looking at angiographic occlusion rates, but by actually looking at deaths. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we become very obsessed with pictures. Uh, I like to show a perfectly clipped aneurysm or a perfectly coiled aneurysm. But what really matters is that we uh, get the patient through their aneurysm problem uh, so that they can eventually die of uh, cancer or heart disease or something else. Uh, you know, a perfect picture uh, has never been correlated with, with, uh, with success as far as death and disability. And so even in the long-term results, which you see here, 18 years of follow-up, the advantage for endovascular therapy is fairly significant. Um, we know that this is related to healing. Uh, when we talk about packing density, 
and we show a picture of an aneurysm that's extremely well coiled, uh, even the most coiled aneurysm peaks out at a packing density of about 30%. And so when you coil an aneurysm, and it looks like there's no contrast getting into the aneurysm at all, essentially what has happened is that we've put so much platinum into the aneurysm that we can't see with our eyes and with our imaging system the flow that is absolutely still in the aneurysm. So this is a dog experimental model uh, from Alex Berenstein's lab. And what you can see is even in a very well-coiled aneurysm, the majority of the space is clot. Uh, and that clot over a period of weeks to months undergoes healing so that uh, the cessation of flow creates uh, an inflammatory situation where the healing can occur and you get scar in the aneurysm. And so I think the first experience that I had with the notion of stopping flow was with, with pipeline. Um, and, and we uh, contributed seven of the 53 patients uh, to the, uh, to the uh, no, sorry, that's the, we contributed seven of the uh, 80 or so patients that were in the, uh, the pipeline US study. And, and I found that to be a, a very useful therapy, but for a minute, let me just tell you a very simplistic way uh, of looking at how flow diversion works. So um, uh, Roten, uh, who is one of our, our um, most uh, anatomically um, careful thought leaders in studying aneurysms, developed a set of rules uh, that he said uh, you could use to, to um, study a normal aneurysm. He said, that uh, aneurysms develop on an artery in a bend in the artery, as you can see in this very simplistic diagram, and they point in the direction that the flow is already going before the bend. So here flow is going this way and it bends there. And the aneurysm occurs just after a branch. So the classic PCOM aneurysm occurs just as the internal carotid artery twists and it goes in the direction of flow just past the PCOM origin. If we look at that classic aneurysm, and aneurysms are diverse or different, so you know this is a very simplified architecture. The um, neck of the aneurysm represents a theoretical two-dimensional plane that separates the aneurysm from the vessel. The classic flow dynamics of an aneurysm shows that there's a high-velocity stream of blood, typically goes in the distal ostium or neck, it then loses energy as it travels around the dome of the aneurysm and is slower as it exits uh, the, the neck of the aneurysm. That's the classic typical flow architecture of the neck of an aneurysm. And so if we look at that neck and we look at how the neck functions, what you see is that the inflow represents an ellipsoid space on the distal margin of the neck, and the outflow represents a larger space occupying usually about 70% of the plane on the proximal neck. Now it's different for a terminus aneurysm, the inflow tends to be more in the center and the outflow around the edge, but again, this is just a simple way of thinking about it. So if we take a mesh that has a density that is sufficient to create a change in this dynamic, but that is not so dense that it restricts our ability to um, feed vessels. 
Um, this dramatically changes the uh, distribution of flow in this plane. What happens is that it slows and broadens the inflow jet. And, and what that does is it creates so much inflow area that the outflow becomes very constricted. And this creates stasis, which in point of fact is very similar to the stasis we see in a coiled aneurysm. So here is a, an aneurysm, it's a large PCOM uh, that was treated, uh, it's a chef uh, uh, from New Orleans, a, a, a woman who's a, a really fantastic cook. And, and this is a 30 frame per second view of what the flow looks like in that aneurysm. And you can see, I'm sorry, it's stopping, but you can see the flow going quickly. If we put a, a flow diverter across it, this is what happens. So you can see the pulsing, slowed, broadened jet there. And then you can see the stasis within the aneurysm with just a single uh, flow diverter placed across that aneurysm. So this is why flow diversion works. We're creating stasis, which allows your body to heal that aneurysm. Now this is the same patient, same aneurysm, but instead we're using uh, color. So you can see that in, on, the, on your uh, left side of the screen over here, the aneurysm looks like an arterial space. It's bright red. And to your body, to our biomechanics, we think that this is an artery. But what we've done with a flow diverter is we've told the body, this is not an artery. This is essentially a wound. This is a dangerous thing that needs to be healed. And then your body or God or magic, whatever it is, will then treat that aneurysm very differently than in the situation before flow diversion. So flow diverters have become a big part of my practice. This is an aneurysm that I think could be coiled. It's an incidental aneurysm, and it was treated with a flow diverter. Here's a, a distal fusiform aneurysm uh, uh, of the PCA in a young woman, a 39-year-old with a family history. Before flow diversion, this was probably an aneurysm I would treat with stent coiling. Uh, which is, involves a lot of work out that distally. Here's placement of a single flow diverter across that aneurysm. And as you can see, with one flow diverter, you get really good stasis and then reconstruction. At six month follow-ups, you get these beautiful pictures of vascular reconstruction and exclusion of the aneurysm. And so flow diversion has taken off. What we've seen in the United States and globally is this has gone from a therapy that was specialized and required training and initially was available in a very few centers to something that now I think is a, a standard part of the neurointerventional armamentarium. Um, and we've seen complications. Um, we've seen all kinds of problems with this new technology. Uh, zombie aneurysms, they angiographically look occluded, but they're still growing. Uh, interparenchymal distal hemorrhages, re-rupture of aneurysms, cranial neuropathies, and the uh, reactions been very different. Here is a paper uh, out of uh, Alex Kuhn's group. Uh, he was at Johns Hopkins then. Alex is one of the most enthusiastic flow diverter proponents I've ever met. And in their first 34 patients, they had one patient uh, with an unruptured aneurysm, a young woman with a small periclinoid aneurysm who died. Um, and they still believe that this is a, 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 an amazing therapy. Um, but, but this is uh, Emmanuel Udar, who's a, a brilliant French neurointerventionalist, and this was at Val d'Isere, uh, when he said that flow diversion was like a pilgrimage to Lourdes, because both are not covered by insurance, 
and uh, both uh, have not been proven. Uh, and, and so uh, he's very uh, critical of flow diversion. But, but all of us, the rest of us, if you're not one of these people who's a complete uh, uh, loving flow diversion or somebody who's uh, very, very critical of flow diversion, uh, we've had to decide you know, when we're going to, uh, to use it. And so here's uh, you know, a variety of reasons why you might use new technology. I think the best reason for an individual physician uh, like one of you or like me uh, Professor Alalaraj, would be to use a new technology for someone who otherwise had no good treatment option. And then the worst reason is just to do something only because it's new. Um, but, but there are a variety of other reasons why we might develop new therapies. So when we compare flow diversion to coiling, uh, I will say that uh, people say it's a completely different treatment. But as I, as I expressed earlier, I think it's the same treatment. In both cases, we're creating a condition of stasis in the aneurysm that allows your body to then heal. Um, and this, to me, is something that uh, rings true of my training in open neurosurgery. When I make an incision on someone's scalp uh, to, to do a craniotomy, at the end of the case, what I try to do is to bring the edges of the wound together very nicely and evenly. Uh, if the patient cannot heal, if they're still bleeding, or if they have a serious immune problem, or perhaps diabetes, it doesn't matter how pretty my incision wound closing is, that wound will fall apart. Because what we're doing is we're creating a condition where your body can, can take that blood clot in the center of the wound, uh, cause fibroblasts and macrophage to, to collect there. The proliferation results in a cross-linking of collagen and that collagen and inflammation tightens down and closes the wound. You go from blood to scar to a good closed wound. And this is exactly what's happening with an aneurysm. So this is an experimental flow model, and we've done a coiling. And I would say that in this case, the distal aneurysm appears relatively well protected. Obviously, there's a loop of coil in the vessel. This is not perfect, but you look uh, at this with standard coils, platinum coils, and you say, okay, that's a pretty decent coiling. If we take exactly the same aneurysm and do the same coiling, but with uh, plastic coils that have the same diameter, but no metal in them, it looks completely different. So now you can see that there is contrast, there is flow going into this coiled aneurysm, but that it's static. And so I would argue that flow diversion biomechanically is the same treatment as coiling. It's creating stasis in an aneurysm that allows us to heal the wound. So intrasacular flow disruption really involves thinking about that and saying, well, what if we could do this without leaving metal behind in the artery um, and still be able to see the aneurysm very well? Um, so as I'm sure most of you know, many of you have used this device to good effect already. Uh, the web device is built on this principle. Uh, it's evolved over time. Now it's available in a system that goes through an 017, an 021, or an 027 catheter. It's really for the treatment of aneurysms between three millimeters and 10 millimeters in maximal dimension. It comes in these two shapes, and this slide is, is out of date. I think at this point, there's probably been closer to 10,000 cases treated. 
Um, so the idea is that instead of an irregular uh, coil packed uh, random arrangement uh, in that ostium at the neck, instead you have the picture you see in the center. And in a terminus aneurysm, it, it's almost like a dartboard. Um, the place where the blood inflow goes into the aneurysm is where the densest material is so that in that center of the aneurysm, you almost have a solid plate of metal. And, and the device itself is quite soft. So once it's opened or flowered, you can uh, push it. And what you want is for it to be under lateral compression. So ideally, in order to lower the chance of recurrence, the top of the web should be against the dome and the sides of the web should be under compression. If a web deployed in an aneurysm has a similar measurement to the web deployed in air, for instance, you use a four by three web and you measure it on your system and in the aneurysm it measures 3.8 by 4.2 or 3.2, that's not a good thing. You really want it to be under compression, but it doesn't need to fill every bleb. So here's a, a case. Uh, this is the first woman uh, with a ruptured aneurysm treated with a web device in the United States. It's a 53-year-old woman who works and takes care of children at home both. Uh, she presented with a ruptured basilar apex aneurysm and hydrocephalus. Here's her picture, her CT. This is a three-dimensional representation of her basilar apex aneurysm. This aneurysm in my hands prior to web, I would have treated with clipping. I don't clip a lot of basilar apex aneurysms, but a shallow, broad, ruptured aneurysm uh, that's at the level of the clinoid to me is safer to clip than to try to get around the bend and put a stent up there. In this case, in, in my opinion, and others may disagree, a stent from the basilar into the right P1 would not cover the neck of the aneurysm very well. And, and it would be difficult to get into the left PM, difficult, not impossible. And then I'd have to take someone with hydrocephalus, uh, a ventriculostomy, a lot of hemorrhage, and, and put them on antiplatelets. So this uh, very broad, very shallow aneurysm is, to me, the use case that I was referring to earlier. This is a patient who doesn't have great options. To me, her best option is a clipping. But with Webb, I think this is a, a very treatable aneurysm. So here is the um, patient immediately after placement of the web within about five minutes. And you can see that there's already stasis within the aneurysm. You can see that the de detachment portion of the web actually protrudes down into the basilar apex, which is okay. Uh, it's very stable, not very thrombogenic. And we've reconstructed the neck of the aneurysm. This is what it looked like at seven days when she came back with mild vasospasm that required treatment. Um, and then at follow-up, I can tell you she's a failure within the study because she had a, a very small neck remnant, um, but she's doing very well. She needed a placement of a ventriculoperitoneal shunt, which was easier because with the web, I didn't need her on aspirin or Plavix. And she's now able to work. Uh, she's now um, five and a half years out from this treatment, has required no treatment further. So. In the web study, we had 30 total sites, uh, 25 in the United States, five outside the United States. Um, we had 150 patients. 
Um, the IDE was approved in 2014 and we enrolled between 2014 and 2016. And here are our primary endpoints. The FDA wanted the primary endpoint to be complete occlusion, no neck remnant. Um, and so that was the primary endpoint. Um, this is the scale that, that was used. Essentially, um, if there was any neck of aneurysm, any wall that was visible at all, that was graded as a failure. Uh, there were several patients graded as failures, like that patient I just showed you, who even though they're a failure for the trial, clinically they are a success. They do not require retreatment and they're, and they're back to life. Um, uh, uh, but uh, this, this was sort of the success failure. This is what our uh, nomogram looks like for enrollment. Uh, the first cases were used, uh, were done with an older device, the WebDL on August uh, of 2014. And then we finished in March of 2016. And I learned a lot uh, through this procedure. I uh, proctored um, more cases than anybody else during the trial. I'm not doing much proctoring now, uh, but I learned about how other people uh, treat patients. So I've, I've protected the uh, identity of this uh, uh, friend who uh, demanded on a Sunday that we treat a patient on Monday morning. And I answered in the middle of the night and said, what's, what's going on? You know, why are, why are we doing this? And he said, well, she's in the hospital for unrelated reasons, but I have to treat her before she goes home. I think this is crazy. If I see a patient with an unruptured aneurysm in the hospital, I, I, I think very few of those aneurysms need to be treated emergently. But particularly in urban areas in the US where there's a lot of competition, there's a real rush to treat unruptured patients. Um, I want a very good quality angiogram prior to treatment, um, but I had colleagues in the study that wanted to treat patients with very poor uh, pictures. Um, I don't know uh, if a case is good for web unless I can see the anatomy. I can see the aneurysm, I can see the branches. So here was a situation where a colleague was asking to enroll a patient on the basis of a very poor quality CTA. Um, and then, you know, again, in the United States, this device is only approved for Basler Apex, ACOM, MCA, or carotid terminus aneurysms. Here's a case of a pica aneurysm uh, that I had a colleague uh, ask if they could put it in the study. And, and I said, no, it's a pica aneurysm. And they didn't seem to really like that. Um, and then measurements. Uh, to, to select a web device, you must be realistic and have very good measurements. And so here's a case where somebody tells me they have a five millimeter Basler Apex, but you can see it's, it's maybe two millimeters. Uh, and, and the, and the uh, colleague is insisting that it's five millimeters. Uh, it's not. If you try to put a six millimeter web in a one millimeter aneurysm, you're gonna have a problem. So real measurement's very important. So I, I think to be our best and do best with our patients, we must pay attention to what we're doing. Radiation dose, uh, good angles that show you the anatomy so you can be very precise. Um, and, and, and I think it's important to do a case uh, quickly. I don't wanna be in somebody's head longer than I have to, but it's important to do it um, deliberately, uh, uh, slowly. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't like to rush when I'm doing something new for sure. So, I learned a lot about how to be a better proctor. Um, being a proctor is hard. Being in a colleague's home, in their lab, uh, different situation, 
Um, I, I have needed proctors and, and I, I, I think it's how we talk to each other, how we communicate um, has a lot to do with, with our outcomes. So I, I think that's an important thing as we teach new technology. Um, and then I learned a lot about, you know, how devices are approved in the United States. So this is a graphic that we use during the presentation of the FDA. The FDA panel uh, process, the web is only one of, I think five or six, maybe three or four devices in the US that have gone through an FDA panel um, was really uh, uh, an interesting situation. It's almost like being on trial with lawyers. Um, so uh, I, uh, I had to mature, I had to get better about um, being asked questions sometimes that seemed not very smart um, and, and prepare very carefully to show this device uh, to people who may not have the background that those of you on the call have to understand how this works to allow healing and allow endothelialization and why this device is something that we should have as one of, of many different therapies that we can use to treat aneurysms. So to go to our results, uh, the web device is uh, the device tested in um, uh, a patient cohort that I think is very similar to what we see in aneurysms, majority female, majority either past or current smokers. Um, it is the widest uh, necked cohort of aneurysms ever studied in what's called a GCP or good clinical practices study. Um, the average dome height was 6.1 millimeters and the average dome width was actually a little more at 6.3 millimeters. So these are are really in Webbit, they are aneurysms that you cannot treat with, with just coiling. We did not include any small necked aneurysms. And in contrast to the European studies, there were a, a good distribution between the Basler, the MCA, and the ACOM. Relatively small carotid terminus numbers for two reasons. One, those tend to have more tortuous access. The supraclinoid carotid is parallel to the skull base and often it's like the back of a chair. Uh, the terminus carotid goes up, so you have that turn. The other thing is carotid terminus aneurysms are much less frequent than uh, MCA or ACOM aneurysms. So um, we saw a fairly um, normal distribution in sizes. Um, we do see a lot of small aneurysms that are ruptured and unruptured. Um, and we saw a, a, a case that is pretty quick. To treat wide-necked aneurysms with a median time of device uh, of 14 minutes and a median total fluoro time of about 30 minutes, it's pretty good. Uh, it's hard to, to do better than that. The fluoro doses, radiation doses, were lower than for sten-assisted coiling as well. And that probably the best thing is because my colleagues were as talented and careful as they are, we ended up with extremely low morbidity and mortality. Uh, no patients were dead within 30 days of their procedure. And we had one patient with what was defined as a primary safety endpoint. Um, so this is the nomogram for patient distribution. Um, we had an effectiveness population of 143 because of some loss to follow up. We tried to get as many as we could and a safety population of 147. And uh, in looking at our major outcomes, and as a, at our success failure rates, we far exceeded the pre-specified endpoint. So based on 
uh, a literature analysis, we had to have a total complete occlusion rate of over 50%. I know that sounds low, but when we look at clipping and we look at stent-assisted coiling and we look at coiling, um, complete occlusion with a, a magnified angiographic view is relatively um, infrequent. I think I just got a question. Protocol of antiplatelet regimen, I absolutely will. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, when we look at this, um, we needed to be above 35% to statistically say that we were at that level. Our, our homework uh, was verified by two other studies, an update we did together in 2017, and then a separate group that did a study out of New York in 2018 that all found complete occlusion rates that were lower than 50% for wide neck aneurysms. Um, so we were able to successfully deliver to the web in 99% of cases. A balloon was used in only 3.4% of cases. If a stent was used, that counts as a failure. So I proctored a case at the Mayo Clinic where the web impinged on a P1 for a basilar apex aneurysm. We had to place a stent It's a failure is marked as a failure, but that patient had a good result uh, clinically. And our primary effectiveness endpoint ended up at 55%. So that, even in a worst case imputation, um, was highly statistically significant that this is not inferior to existing therapies for effectiveness. Uh, adequate occlusion uh, with a very small neck remnant or complete occlusion was at 85%. And we saw some very nice results. So angiographic recurrence in one year was at 18. Um, and we have had several of these patients that have needed to be retreated. This is not a perfect therapy. And, and there are patients who have recurrences. And I think if we get better at it, hopefully that recurrence rate will go down. But that is the big weakness of this technology. So I just wanted to show you the one patient out of the 150 who met the safety endpoint. Um, just so you have an idea of why that occurred. This was a 54-year-old woman who lives in New York. She has fairly significant multiple sclerosis and smokes. And she had a seven millimeter unruptured ACOM aneurysm. And this was treated with a web device. She actually had an MRA done, MRI done after the treatment that showed no small ischemic hits or anything else, went home, but then three weeks later on the 22nd day after treatment, she presented with this remote right parietal hemorrhage. And so I don't know whether this remote parietal hemorrhage is a hemorrhagic transformation of a small um, thrombotic stroke that occurred because of the web, or whether this is related to a possible concurrent vasculitis or other condition. But in, in uh, a study like this, I think absolutely you have to adjudicate this since it was 22 days after the treatment as related to the index procedure. So this is the safety event uh, that, that, that occurred out of our 150 cases. So I, I think you can say best on the, based on the data that Webb is a safe and effective treatment option. I would argue that the data we have is that it's the safest option we've ever studied for wide neck aneurysms, not the most effective. Um, and uh, we had very good results. So current status is that it's very safe and we're trying to figure out how to integrate web into US practice. So let me answer that question that I got. Um, in my practice, 
we put every patient who I'm going to treat for an aneurysm endovascularly on dual antiplatelets about 10 days before the procedure. And then we test them at five days. And then I do the procedure under dual antiplatelets. So if I'm doing a web, only coiling, balloon-assisted coiling, I use dual antiplatelets for every patient. I do this personally for two reasons. Uh, the first is I think it lowers the risk of a thromboembolic complication during the procedure. And the second is in the event that I get a coil protrusion or a web protrusion or a dissection, uh, even a carotid dissection from my guide catheter, I am comfortable immediately putting in a stent because they already are on dual antiplatelets. I don't have to give a 2B3A agent. I can just do what I need to do. If I do a web in a ruptured patient, which is what the question was, I do not give any aspirin or any Plavix at all before the procedure. I do the procedure, and if it's a very large aneurysm with a high burden of stasis, or if the device is protruding onto the parent artery, after the web is implanted, I start aspirin only. And, and that's my own personal practice, but it's not something that's prescribed. We're not telling people what to do. So I still have uh, another, I don't know, 50 slides about web technique, but perhaps this is a good moment to stop before I transition into talking about how to use the device best and ask if um, anyone has questions or comments on the theory and, and the data that I presented. Thank so, you very much about uh, the uh, interesting presentation. Thanks, Tamar. Yeah, I think we have uh, some questions from the floor. Do you like to answer them now? Sure. So yeah. I have two questions here. Oh, I'm sorry, you have live people there? Go ahead. Yes, um, there is a question from Dr. Suhail about the antiplatelet therapy regimen in acutely ruptured aneurysms. Right, so uh, as I said a minute ago, I do not give any antiplatelets uh, for the treatment of acutely ruptured aneurysms. If it's, if it's a, a protruding web, I would, I would put a, uh, aspirin on after. No, no, uh, doesn't, he doesn't, he's not concerned with the web. He's talking about, for example, flow diverters or uh, coiling? So for acutely ruptured aneurysms, I don't use flow diverters unless I absolutely have to. Um, uh, for coiling, I don't use any platelets for acutely ruptured aneurysms at all. If I used a flow diverter in an acutely ruptured aneurysm, I tend to give um, intravenous 2B3A antiplatelet agents at the time of implantation and then follow quickly with ticagrelor. Um, while I have the IV drip running. So I usually give a half loading dose and a half drip, give the ticagrelor while the drip is running. And then after the ticagrelor and aspirin have been metabolized, then I stop my IV drip. But okay. um, that's not something I've ever done during, with a web treatment. I've only done that with flow diversion. Okay, how about the coils? Do you give antiplatelet therapy after you finish coiling? Not for a ruptured aneurysm, no. I, I generally do not. Do, do you? Uh, is that yeah, something we, you do? Yes, yeah. we do, yeah, for a month, yeah. Okay. Okay, we have another question about the, um, did you use DynaCT to check the accuracy of web deployment before detachment? So um, I think in that case, I did not. I have, uh, I, I do like using DynaCT and MIPS 
to check in multiple planes. And I will always do that if I'm worried that the web is protruding and that I may need mm. a stent, but mm. I don't do it in every case. Okay. Uh, he's asking about the parameters that, that you choose for web sizing. I think you have mentioned about the size of the neck. Sorry, the size of the, the dimension of the body. Would you like to yeah. have any, any comment about this? I'm going to talk a little more about that further in the talk, but I will say that's a challenging thing that requires a learning curve. So the web is soft and it will fill the main chamber of the aneurysm, but you have to pay attention to what the dome of the aneurysm looks like. So if you have an aneurysm that is perfectly shaped as a cylinder or a ball, like the web, then generally for a seven millimeter or less aneurysm, I pick a web device that is about a millimeter larger in width and a millimeter shorter in, in height. For a nine, eight, 10 millimeter aneurysm, I, I pick a device that's more like two or even three millimeters wider, and that's a little shorter because you want it under lateral compression. Now, if you have an aneurysm that is pointed, if the dome looks like the roof of a, of a, of a house, you have to take that into account because some of the web is going to be pushed down. So mm -hmm. it really does require some thought. I, I think early uh, in the trial, we were using two, maybe even three webs um, because you put one in, you don't like it, you take it out, you put another in on average. But at very experienced practices, for instance, in Montpellier in France, they're treating every aneurysm with web they're using on average 1.07 webs per case. So they almost never get the size wrong. You know, they know what they're doing, boom, they get the size right. So it just requires some experience before you're really good at that. Okay. And so here's another question. Yes, Usama is asking about the, uh, he's commenting that there's a warning about the late complication from the web treatment. Do you have any comment about this? Delayed complications. Yeah, he said treatment. the FDA recall for the warning about the late complications from ah, the web treatment. Yeah, so um, there's not an FDA warning. The FDA asked that Microvention put out a, a statement that there have not delayed problems, but that there have been hemorrhages and devices moving at the time of deployment. And so what I can tell you is this is not the same as coiling. Um, and if you deploy the web at the dome of the aneurysm, that initial deployment, it's very sharp. You can tear the aneurysm. And similarly, you can tear an aneurysm by putting a via catheter at the dome. The via catheter is quite a stiff catheter. So the majority of the um, perioperative complications are actually related to the via and the microwire, some to the web. But the FDA warning was, essentially, look, this is a new device and we're seeing some um, punctures, some bleeding um, uh, at a low rate on the order of about two to 3% during deployment of the web. Um, and then it looks like someone's saying they've had some problems with detachment. Yeah, so I, I'm glad you asked that question. Again, this is technique, it's a good question. Um, I'm gonna talk about this in a minute, but the, the detacher is electrolytic and it can be a little bit sticky. And so what I do is I move my microcatheter off of the detacher so that my zone is there. I detach it. And then the first thing I do is I push the web wire. If it is not detached, 
you will see the, the web axially push into the aneurysm, right? It's going to stay firm. If it is detached, it will do this. So you often will see a device that is, you know, uh, held, this is my wire, this is my detacher. It's held like this. And when you detach it, sometimes you'll see the device move like that. And if you don't see it move, when you push, it moves. And so I push first to get the wire to go off of it and then pull the wire down. But I think um, John uh, Sebi, who's commenting, you are right. This is not as easy as detaching a coil. It requires some care. And, 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 and if you're not careful and you just pull, sometimes it's not well detached. I think that's something that Microvention needs to work a little bit on. Okay. So as a department of neurosurgery, which aneurysm you, you clip now? So I'm going to show you a, a, an example in a moment. Um, okay. But no, no, I mean the, the protocol you use. You know, we are not that rich country. Sometimes we cannot do in the vascular because of the uh, issues. Financial. Yeah. yeah. So in our university, we do most of the aneurysm with clipping. And if we can't, we shift to in the vascular. So how about your policy? So I'll show you some cases. I, I you know, it's a mixed bag. I'm sure my choices are different than your choices are different than Professor Alaraj or Osama. You know, there's no recipe that's right for everyone. In general, in young patients with shallow ruptured aneurysms, anterior circulation, I still have a little bit of an open surgical bias. I still clip many MCA aneurysms, small uh, ruptured ACOM aneurysms. But I have to admit that the web device has taken a bite out of my clipping practice. And, and, and now I'm treating some of those with, uh, with intrasacular flow diversion. But I'll talk about that more. I have another question here. How do you decide which shape to use? It's a good question. We use mostly SL. There are more SL shapes than SLS, but it really depends on the size of the aneurysm. The SLS device is 1.6 millimeters less than the width. And so I, I, I use the SLS on specific aneurysms. I, I don't have a rule about when to use one versus the other. Okay, I, I just uh, I just uh, have a small comment. Uh, is there a difference between sizing or special tips you use when you treat a ruptured aneurysm rather than unruptured? Does oversizing in the ruptured one carries more risk for rupture? I, I don't think so. I'm going to talk about technique, and I think technique is the key part. Um, I, I think you can still oversize the width, even in a ruptured aneurysm. If you don't, the chance of recurrence goes way up. I have a question regarding the, those, those aneurysm that incorporating a branch inside the sac or the neck. Uh, uh, you know, we have some um, theories about using of extravascular uh, flow diversion and the effect of this flow diver diverter stent on this uh, type of, of uh, side branches. Uh, the fate of these uh, side branches depend on the uh, eloquence of the supply of this branch or the, the pressure gradient through the, the stent, uh, flow diverter stent. What about the, um, the behavior of the intracellular um, uh, flow diversion, especially on those aneurysms with a side branch coming from the sac or from the, from the neck? It's a very good question, Osama. So what I will say is the mesh density of the web is much higher than a flow diverter. So if you put a web over a branch, I do not expect good things. I think that branch is going to go away. 
So uh, you have to be very careful. This is really meant to be in the aneurysm. If it is protruding over 50% of the ostium of a branch, you know, when you have an asymmetric situation, you really are going to have to put a stent in to preserve the patency of that branch. So unlike flow diverters, I do not think it's safe to put a web over uh, the origin of a branch. So I have another question here. What's the treatment strategy in case of a remnant neck of an aneurysm treated initially with web? It's a good question, very relevant question, something we've seen. So I think if you have a remnant that's large um, and you want to retreat, the nice thing about web is that you have a full set of options. So small neck remnants, small shallow neck remnants, one millimeter neck remnants, one and a half millimeter deep neck remnants, I frankly think with clipping, with web, or with coiling are probably pretty safe. They can be followed uh, in general. You may grow a new aneurysm off the neck in a young patient, but certainly with coiling, um, which I think is analogous to web, shallow neck remnants are, are shown to be quite safe. Um, with clipping, even safer because you're bringing the, the, the tissue together. But in the event that you have a significant recurrence, you still have the ability to use coil beside the web or under the web. You still have the ability to use a flow diverter. You still have the ability to use a stent. And the initial experience is that going and doing a craniotomy and clipping a previously webbed aneurysm is much safer and more pleasant than clipping a previously coiled aneurysm. Mika Niemela and the group out of Finland have, in my knowledge, the, the largest experience of clipping previously coiled aneurysms. There are now a couple of case reports in the literature. And what Mika says is that when you go to clip a previously coiled aneurysm, what's happened in most cases is that the aneurysm has shrunk and the coils are in the subarachnoid space. So you have an irregular scarred coil ball that's really in the subarachnoid space. And you have to do all that dissection and sometimes cut the coil in order to get to your aneurysm neck and clip the aneurysm neck. But the web is almost like a snowshoe. It, it has this mesh that pushes against the wall of the aneurysm. So in early cases, we're not seeing that the web is in the subarachnoid space. What we're seeing is that the aneurysm has shrunk and kept the web inside the aneurysm, and there's less scarring around the outside, making for easier dissection. And in fact, if you need to clip on the web or you need to move the web or, or squeeze it, it's quite soft compared to a solid ball of coil. So I think uh, the question is, what is my treatment strategy? My answer is the treatment strategy is wide open. Some of them can be left alone and simply monitored. Some of them can be treated with sten-assisted coiling, and some can go to the OR for clipping. Any other questions? Ali uh, Alaraj, do you have any comments uh, to this point? Uh, or, or Osama, any, anyone else have uh, comments before I go on to talk about uh, more technique-related things? Well, thank you, uh, Adam. I think we, uh, we all kind of uh, building our own experience and uh, figured out how to kind of treat those uh, patients. As you're very well aware, in our shop, we still do a lot of clipping. Uh, so we are uh, a little bit late to the game when it comes to, to those type of patients. So I have a question here on the follow-up protocol for web-treated patients. Again, I think it's what's most comfortable for you. Um, I 
enjoy diagnostic angiography. I actually think a transradial diagnostic angiogram in some ways is safer and easier for a patient than a CTA or an MRA. So for every patient I clip, they have an angiogram uh, either on the table during the clipping or immediately after. And if they're young, I'm going to follow them with, with MRA. For all of my endovascular treated patients, uh, flow diversion, coiling, or web, everybody gets a transradial angiogram at six months after treatment. And then I typically do another angiogram at 18 months and then at five years. If everything looks good at five years, then I go to MRA or CTA. Um, but I, unlike a lot of people in the United States, I still uh, believe in diagnostic angiography. I don't substitute MRA for all of my patients. I like to see the anatomy. Uh, I really like to understand what I'm dealing with. But I, I'm just telling you my opinion. I, I have many colleagues who essentially only do angiograms if they're going to treat a patient and they otherwise use MRA or CTA. I just don't, I just like angiography. Um, other comments on follow-up? Uh, this is Ali again. I think it's crucial that whoever's doing the procedure have a very low complication rate when it comes to angiography. And if you have a very low complication rate, then actually you will learn much more by doing angiography on all of your patients. We certainly do miss a lot of uh, small uh, dissecting perforator organisms uh, with MRAs and with CTAs, and we can only find those on geography. Uh, we have tons of those patients that would be tested before with non-invasive images, and then there's small aneurysms that uh, you know are missed. So, but it's crucial that whoever's doing that that actually they have the very low complication rates. I agree. Well said. All right. Well, if there aren't further questions, I'll just move on to the second part of my talk. Okay. All right. So now we're in the situation where we're starting to integrate it into our daily practice and trying to figure out how to use it. And I think some of your questions, because you have a lot of experienced users there, were about that. So in the early experience, we are seeing some safety events, mostly related to placement and handling of the via catheter. And so I have a quote here from Erwin Rommel um, uh, about fighting uh, the Americans, uh, actually in your area of the world, in, in Tunisia and, and, and Northern Africa. And, and, and what, what Rommel said was that uh, uh, we got to the war late uh, after the Europeans, and we weren't uh, as used to fighting in the desert. But what we did was the Americans learned as quickly as they could from the experience of the people who had already been fighting in Northern Africa. And that if you learn from other people's experience, you can be very good. So to some extent, while I'm proud of good experience in the US and in Webbit, it is only because we have learned from people, mostly in Europe, who really worked on this technology. Uh, colleagues like Laurent uh, Perrault, Laurent Spell, Saru Chekerjay, Ishil Shachi, um, uh, uh, many of these people worked very, very hard. Alan Thomas, uh, um, Nader Saror, uh, th these are guys who were very experienced before I touched a, a web, and, and they really gave me time and thought to help me learn how to do this. 
And so I, I think you cannot talk about the US web experience and our technique without saying, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We were taught by people who had learned through uh, hard work how to do things properly. So the first lesson I'm gonna show you is related to complications. Um, this was one of the first patients I treated. Uh, she's a woman, she's a school teacher. Um, uh, she's a beautiful uh, young uh, Christian woman and she had this unruptured aneurysm and we treated her with the DL device uh, early in the experience before we had good devices that we could see. Uh, in her case, we used a five or sorry, a six by three DL. So uh, this is a sped up view of the catheter and the aneurysm. You'll note that at this point we're using a 27 via catheter for, for the six by three. Now we would use even a 17 or a 21, but the, the catheter tip is staying low, not at the dome. The web was placed at the tip. We stop when it's tip to tip, and then we begin to flower it. So this device, the DL, very difficult to see, but here you can see we're just beginning to see the web begin to spread out. Until you see it flower or blossom, it is a spear, it is dangerous. So if you have the, your catheter against the dome and you push the web against the dome, it's gonna tear. You have to make sure the catheter is down. In some cases, my catheter tip is actually in the parent artery, out of the aneurysm, because I can't push against the dome until it's flowered. I, I call the, the um, deployment window, right, is your time where you can position the web. And the deployment window starts when you see the web fatten up become like a pillow. And it ends when the device is against the sidewalls. Because once it's grabbed the sidewalls, you can't change its position. So until it's fattened, you can't place it really where you want it at the dome. And then once it's got the edges, you can't move it. So here it is fully deployed. And I apologize at how poorly it is uh, able to be seen, but the early device was not easily visible. I don't know if you can see my mouse, but this is the AP, what the web looks like. And here on the lateral, you can see what the web looks like. So I had it well deployed in the aneurysm. I was very happy. This is one of my first cases. What I did not realize is that the web is much softer than coil and the via is much stiffer than a regular coiling catheter. And so, here, I did not appreciate that my via was under forward pressure because in a coiled aneurysm, it really doesn't matter. If your aneurysm catheter is under a little forward pressure and you detach, it's just gonna move a little bit. But what happened here is when I detached the device, the via pushed up into the aneurysm, the web turned into a you know, U and she began to experience subarachnoid hemorrhage. So my patient is asleep on the table and she's bleeding. And uh, I have a proctor from Europe and it's one of my first experiences. And this is a, this is a disaster. Uh, this is terrible. I was very frightened. I worried that I'd killed my patient. Um, here you can see, again, I apologize for the poor visibility. Gratefully now we have better visibility, but you can see that the web device is almost in a U shape, right? And the, the via has shoved up into the aneurysm causing the tip to rupture. So uh, management of complications, right? Uh, something we've all had to learn. 
I gave protamine. I asked for platelets, which were very late. And then I prepared a balloon um, very quickly. So here's my balloon. So this is a hyperform balloon that's in the basilar artery. And I put the balloon up and did a quick angiogram to make sure I had occlusion. This uh, picture makes me a little bit uh, nauseated uh, because the basilar apex is not getting flow from the basilar, but uh, a brief period of occlusion. Uh, I think I, I gave it one minute. And when the balloon came down, I still have filling in the aneurysm, but the bleeding has stopped. So her blood pressure remained stable. Uh, I did not see signs of increased intracranial pressure. And when I did an angiogram, I didn't see slow branches. I, I thought this looked okay. Um, so a DynaCT, I apologize, it's an old DynaCT from 2014. You can see blood and contrast in the prepontine cistern and in the paramesencephalic cistern. So she awoke and was perfect, no headache. And CT on post-op day one showed that the subarachnoid hemorrhage I had was gone. It's mostly contrast. And I kept her in the hospital for three days just because I was very nervous, um, but she did uh, quite well. Um, I, had, uh, I had no uh, complications. Um, so uh, maybe it was better to be lucky than good, but she did not meet a primary safety endpoint, even though I tore her aneurysm on deployment of the web. So here's her follow-up at five years. So uh, again, um, you know, one of my colleagues who's a very uh, religious man, he always says, by the grace of God. Um, and so by the grace of God, um, even though I did a bad job, she had a very good result. So she has, I think, a, a, a quite a nice result. You can't see the device, so that's why I've drawn on there where the device is. But um, she has not required retreatment now six years uh, later. And she's very happy. Um, she's teaching children at school. So that was at her five-year follow-up. I have to say, it makes me very humble and even a little ashamed to take a patient with an unruptured aneurysm, have a complication, tear the aneurysm, and have her, have her think that I saved her life uh, because really I put her life in danger. Uh, but um, uh, as my colleague says, uh, by the grace of God, she's now six years after treatment of her basilar apex aneurysm and she's still teaching children in school. So learning points. Well, firstly, I want to show a complication, um, but uh, if I could go back in time, the non-extended um, visualization DL webs, um, I think are somewhat um, dangerous and they're not uh, on the uh, market anymore, which is a good thing. Um, when you have a complication with the new device, it's very frightening and lonely. And ideally, you have uh, an extremely good proctor who can help you when you have that. So the question I have here is during web deployment, when it blossoms, is it 100% safe if it's pushed against the dome? We're still not that safe. I think once it's blossomed, it's very safe to push against the dome. Now, 100%. I, I, I have never seen a case where the device is blossomed and the device tears uh, an aneurysm, rupture or unruptured. 
Uh, so I think it's very safe, but I can't tell you 100%. So I'm going to give another illustration. Uh, this is a, an aneurysm that was treated by a colleague of mine. Um, when she did this case, she was in her second year of endovascular practice after a fellowship. Um, she did some very good things. And so I'm going to use this case to illustrate some of the things that I think are important. The patient's a 52-year-old woman whose mother had a ruptured aneurysm, and she has an unruptured ACOM aneurysm. She smokes about one and a half packs of cigarettes a day, so fairly significant nicotine use. Um, and she has this wide-necked ACOM aneurysm. Uh, this is not an easy aneurysm to treat. It's somewhat um, pointed, uh, particularly on this uh, AP oblique, uh, very wide-necked. And um, the aneurysm measures at about six, six and a half millimeters in width, but it is somewhat triangular. So you can't, uh, imagine the web's going to fill the top. It's going to have to be pointed at the top. It, the shoulders are going to be pressed down. And so we used an eight by three web. Um, our system was a six French shuttle transfemoral. Um, I'm doing most of my webs now transradial, but we still do femoral cases regularly. Uh, the shuttle was placed in the cervical carotid and then a Sophia EX as an intermediate catheter into the um, uh, cavernous uh, to, to supraclinoid carotid, and then a VIA 27 microcatheter and the Aristotle 18 wire. So here you can see the VIA being pushed into the supraclinoid carotid, and uh, not the VIA, sorry, the Sophia in the supraclinoid carotid or cavernous uh, to supraclinoid carotid, and the um, VIA is in the supraclinoid carotid. And here um, you can see that it is truly supraclinoid initially with the Sophia. And then we've placed the via all the way in the aneurysm. So here's the device. It's woven. It has a lot of metal. So you have to be very careful as you're pushing around these turns to watch because sometimes the via will go forward or back. And again, I don't want this to contact that wall. So my colleague, Dr. Enoa, is being very deliberate and slow and careful making sure that that device is, is, is safe um, and it's not causing movement of the microcatheter. In my opinion, there's no reason not to go slow here. Uh, I like, I like a, a practitioner who has very slow hands. We always stop when we get tip to tip, make sure that the web has not change the configuration of the via. If you need a new roadmap, get a new roadmap. And then here she's gonna unsheath. So very dangerous here. It's pointed. If that contacts the wall of the aneurysm, it could be bad. So she's taking pressure off the system, okay? Everything's coming back a little bit. You'll see that the device tip does not go forward because she's being very careful to move it back. And so that's where you can have a perforation, right? Right here is just where it starts to blossom. Do not push this before it's blossomed more. So I would ask, I would answer the question I had earlier by saying, this is the most likely time to tear an aneurysm with the web device. It's with catheterization of the aneurysm or pushing of the initial portion of the web before it's blossomed. Um, that has been my experience. So now, you can see um, you're just beginning to see the web fatten up. It's only barely 
able to be pushed now. But when it starts to do this, now you can gently push. And, and what's important about that is we must have the web under lateral compression. So here is an experiment where I'm showing you two SLS7 devices, okay? Identical devices. We've put one into a six millimeter glass tube and we put the other into a 10 millimeter glass tube. So the six millimeter device is laterally compressed. You can see it looks more like a door than a square. It is taller. The other device is under no compression. When we apply weight, physical weight to this aneurysm, this device will hold itself strong with all the way to 40 grams of downward pressure. But the device that is unconstrained and is not under pressure becomes like a pancake uh, if you only put five grams of pressure on it. So it's incredibly important that your device be braced. Otherwise, it's simply not going to work. It's, it's going to have a recurrence. So this is this question of oversizing. It can be one millimeter oversized, two millimeters oversized. It has to be oversized. So now you can see that it's fattened considerably, right? She's in the deployment window. The device can be pushed, uh, but it's not yet against the sides of the aneurysm. And so now is the time to push the device and you will watch the, the, the tip rotating right? It's rotating clockwise because the angle of the A1 is different than the angle of the aneurysm. So when you initially are deploying your web, it's horizontal, but as she moves the device up, it's now achieving the access of the aneurysm, which is what we want to make sure that we don't cover this large A2 osteum. So here you can see it's under pressure, it's up against the dome and it's rotated. And now she popped it out. Now, in this situation, it's still under so much pressure that when you look at the bottom edge of the web, it's dimpled, it's pushed in. She's now got to release pressure gradually and let the web base relax to finish the deployment at the neck. So here, I'm trying to show you this in an up, up close view. You see how she's pulling and allowing the web to come down. Um, I'm going to show that again just to make sure that everyone can see it. The top edge there is coming down as she releases the pressure on the web. She's pulling the web down to make sure that it's in a good, good situation. And again, the via is horizontal, but she has managed to not have the web be along the axis of the via. She's managed to get the web into an angle that's more appropriate for the aneurysm. So initial angiography, you can see the web is under compression, right? On this lateral, you can see the web is absolutely deformed by the aneurysm. It doesn't look anything like its normal shape. And then here's the detachment. So the question earlier was, you know, when you have a detachment problem, you see that when it detaches there, it releases, right? So now I'm quite comfortable it's detached. If I don't see that release, if I don't see that stem go more like the aneurysm and less like the via, I'm not sure it's detached. And so I always push the via first initially, not the via, sorry, push the wire first initially to make sure we're detached. So now we're detached and we can do angiography. 
So here you can see immediate early stasis in the aneurysm. I would argue that this is not perfect. There is a little bit of shoulder filling on that A2, but sometimes we say perfect is the enemy of good. I think this is a challenging wide-necked aneurysm. It might require a stent. Um, clipping it is, it requires some skill. Um, this is a very good result in my opinion. So the stem is down in the ACOM, the web is under compression, and what you saw on uh, a whole head angiogram fire deployment and what you see after, I make, I, it's very, very good. Uh, you're, you're still seeing the same flow pattern in your distal branches, but if you look here, the, the aneurysm is already static. It's going to be gone within an hour, it's, uh, angiographically. Same thing in the lateral. You can see the aneurysm there, but here, the aneurysm is almost invisible with the parfait glass sign uh, that we see inside a woven device like a flow diverter or a web. So one of the questions I get asked is, when do I clip versus when do I do web? So one of my fellows, Dr. Khan, who's phenomenal, put this together because we treated two ACOM aneurysms on the same day that are very similar aneurysms, and I chose to web one and clip the other. So uh, why would I make a choice? Again, uh, at, at Dr. Alari's shop with Sepi Amin Hanjani uh, and with Fadi Sharbel, um, uh, they have phenomenal uh, open surgeons. They're going to clip something different than I'm going to clip. Um, I'm sure in Egypt you have phenomenal surgeons who are going to clip something different than I would clip. But I'm just going to show you sort of my thinking. I got a question. Let me answer this. Angiographic occlusion criteria in case of web is it the same as FD. Well, uh, no. In FD, you're able to per perfectly place a, uh, a net across the neck of the aneurysm. So if there's any filling at all in a flow diverting case, I'm worried that it's not a well-treated aneurysm. In web, I think it's more like coil. Um, uh, a less than perfect result with a very small neck, I think clinically may still be safe enough that you may want to leave it. But again, this is a matter of judgment. So let's talk about decision-making on these two ACOM aneurysms. So uh, the first gentleman is a 59-year-old guy who does not live in Memphis, where I am. He's from out of town. He was seen by um, practitioners in Boston and in Washington, DC. Um, and he comes with this pointed, downward-facing anterior communicating artery an uh, aneurysm. So I looked at that and thought, could I treat that with web? Yes, maybe, but it's narrow and it's pointed. And when I make my decision, in this case, I lean towards clipping. Why do I lean toward clipping? Well, it's wide-necked, so I'm going to have to use a stent or a web. I can't just coil it. Um, it uh, is in a patient who's a very healthy 59-year-old man with a positive family history. It is pointing down and inferiorly. There's very good literature on this. Uh, an ACOM aneurysm that points down and inferiorly is a much less risky clipping than one that points up. You don't have to deal with the perforators as much. You don't have to do as much dissection. So an up-pointed ACOM can certainly be clipped safely. I'm not suggesting it can't, but this is an easier surgical case. Uh, and it's conical, right? So that, that web in some ways, in a conical aneurysm, is going to be pushed towards the base, and it's going to be more of a struggle. 
So we chose to do a modified uh, orbitozygomatic terional. Um, some people have talked about frontal lobe retraction for an ACOM rather than splitting the fissure. I like to have my fissure very widely split. Um, this allowed for significant improvement in inferior and superior exposure at the ACOM. I did not uh, need a retractor at all. Um, and I uh, have a large corridor, which gives me degrees of freedom so that I can see from one axis and move my clip or my instruments from a different axis. So here's a, a brief operative video. I'm not gonna show you the whole thing, but here you can see with no uh, retractor um, that you get good exposure. Um, uh, I like surgery to be easy. Um, so here's the carotid terminus. You can see no retractor, good visualization of the optic nerve, good visualization of the A1. Here the aneurysm is coming into view. Uh, I like to dissect across the base and find my contralateral A1 first. So there you see the contralateral A1. I will often put a temporary clip on the contralateral A1 early, leave it there, it's very safe to leave there. And then if I have bleeding or a problem, I know that I can put a clip on my ipsilateral A1 very easily. So again, just like with angiography uh, or end of the vascular approaches, you can see I'm not smart enough to be fast. I'm, I'm slow, uh, I, I like to know what I'm looking at. I worried this was a pointed aneurysm, but um, you can see that much of the aneurysm is thick and yellow. There is a bleb at the tip. Um, so here you can see a temporary clip going on the contralateral A1 under the aneurysm where it's not going to be in my way. Um, we decided not to leave it on. This is my fellow uh, closing an aneurysm clip without temporary clipping. Um, I, I had to do some readjusting of the aneurysm clip I uh, wasn't entirely happy with it. And, and here's a, a tandem clip that went on um, just to make sure that we're all the way across the bottom of the aneurysm. So I think that's a safe clipping. I think there's a low risk of a cognitive problem. There's no, it, there's no resection of gyrus rectus. We use video angiography in this case, uh, so you can see quite well the filling of the vessels and the relationship of the aneurysm neck and, and that the dome is not filling. So he still did an angiogram because I, again, I'm crazy. I want angiograms in every patient, but in his case, we did the angiogram post-op day one transradial. Um, so here's his post-op day one transradial angiogram. Um, I was happy. I think uh, this is, a, a pretty good clipping. I, I don't think, here you see pre-op, here you see post-op. Um, you can see that there's a good exclusion of the aneurysm and here's the lateral. So pre-op and post-op. Now I will point out, as Dr. Alaraj or somebody mentioned, um, a small neck remnant, I don't think is the end of the world. And even though I'm proud of the surgery and I think we did a good job, I think if you look right here, you can see that there's probably a 0.1 millimeter, 0.2 millimeter neck remnant. It is not perfect. Um, but again, perfect is the enemy of good. I, I think this is a good clipping. He's likely to be well protected. So the same day, I had a different ACOM present. So this is a 69-year-old woman who presented with sudden headache. 
She has a history of cardiac problems, a right bundle branch block, hyperlipidemia, hypertension. She's a heavy smoker. Uh, she was uh, good grade. Let me get a question here. Acom Aneurysm you show was six to 6.5 millimeter size and you've used an eight by three web, almost two more oversized. How much oversize is safe? Good question. Um, the answer is uh, you can oversize as much as you want as long as the web isn't protruding. So an oversize of a six and a half millimeter aneurysm by one and a half millimeters is not too much. Um, if it's a 10 millimeter aneurysm, uh, you could oversize by two or three millimeters. If it's a four millimeter aneurysm, I only oversize by one. I, I have had cases where you could oversize and use a seven by four web or an eight by three. You know, if it's a five or six millimeter aneurysm, you probably can get away with either. So back to the case I'm talking about, it's another ACOM aneurysm on the same day, okay? So here is her subarachnoid hemorrhage. Here's her aneurysm. So you might say, Dr. Arthur, this is a very similar aneurysm. It points down and it is somewhat pointed. There's a bleb. It is wide-necked. I think if I do it endovascularly, I might need a stent with coils and I could clip it, but it's ruptured. Uh, there's a higher complication rate in a ruptured case. Um, I did not have an OR immediately available. She came in with her subarachnoid hemorrhage as we were inducing the other patient. So she could follow him or I could do her essentially at the same time. So I decided to treat this aneurysm with a web device, very similar to the other aneurysm, but it was a choice I made. So transradial, we used an infinity long sheaf in the cervical ICA, a Sophia EX, a VIA 21 over a headliner 016 wire. And what we used was a seven by three web in the six millimeter aneurysm. So here again, I'm gonna play, you see the blossoming there. And once it's blossomed, we can begin to push the web into position. And again, you're seeing it's, it's very slow, okay? No sudden movements, slow controlled hand movements. When I watch a true master, a, um, you know, Jacques um, uh, uh, Moray, uh, Alex Berenstein, um, Jacques Dion before he retired. Um, these people are slow. They're very careful with their fingers. Uh, and this is, this is uh, uh, me trying to be slow. And there you see at the end, it's popped. Now the device is there. So here with the device deployed, you can see the filling, the angiogram there. We like doing this native uh, fill to look at the device. And then here's a subtracted angiogram. And you can see the uh, stasis within the aneurysm. So I showed you a complication. I showed you a young neurointerventionalist using extremely good technique. I talked about what I think is the most dangerous part of web deployment. I talked about that deployment window. And then I tried to give an illustration of why in my own practice, I might clip one aneurysm, but use a web in another uh, aneurysm. The second aneurysm had more of an antrum to fit the web um, and was ruptured. Um, I think as if you're early in your experience, right? So Dr. 
Alaraj said, um, because we clip so much, you know, we're not doing as much of this yet. In, in, when you're early, my recommendation is to do cases that are straight, where the access artery is a line and the aneurysm is right there. Often those are basilars, most likely, or MCAs. It's harder to get very good straight anatomy for an ACOM and very hard for a carotid terminus. Um, and I think a larger aneurysm on the order of six to nine millimeters gives you more deployment window room. It allows you to have a little bit more of a, 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 a comfort in making sure <coughs> that the web is blossomed uh, and that you can push it. If you're treating a five millimeter or four millimeter aneurysm, you just don't have that much comfort. Um, uh, but uh, th this was my attempt to, uh, to illustrate some of the practicalities that I thought would be helpful. Um, I think if, uh, if anyone has any questions about web technique or case choice, I I'm very happy to an an answer them. Thank you for the chance to give this talk. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, for your very interesting uh, presentation. Uh, I think uh, I have a question. Uh, uh, you know that we are, um, the, the financial issue is very important in our practice here in, uh, in, in our country. And sometimes we don't have all measures uh, of, uh, of the devices. So um, I have one of my friend um, uh, mixing between uh, a, de a web device with coils for um, uh, short because of the shortage of the of the measures of the web device and sometimes he may mix with uh, two devices at the same time in the in one in one aneurysm do you have any comment about this one yeah i i think um it, in a large aneurysm corking the neck with the web and trapping a coiling catheter at the dome to deploy coils is a very good strategy um, and I think it allows you to treat large aneurysms well. But again, the web has to be under compression or it's not going to work. Um, I have tried to be clear. I think the web is a useful tool to have in all of our tools. Uh, but I know that you have very skilled neurointerventionalists and neurosurgeons. And I am certainly not saying that you should be using this in all or even most cases. All right, so I have some other questions here. Uh, ACOM aneurysms usually sell blebs or daughter sacs. Coil can enter into sacs and blebs, but not the web. Still use web or change over to coil. Good question. Um, just as with a flow diverter, I think a web deployed in the main chamber of an aneurysm, even though it doesn't fill the bleb, is extremely safe. Essentially, you've got the bottom of the web and the top of the web, each of them two to three times as dense as a flow diverter. So that bleb is going to be occluded immediately. So I'm fine um, uh, webbing the main portion of an aneurysm and leaving a small bleb. It's not going to rupture. Um, what about occlusion rates for non-bifurcation aneurysms such as wide neck PCOM, same as bifurcation? Uh, you know, that's something we have to study. Um, uh, the web is off-label for treatment of a PCOM in the United States. Physicians still can do it and, and have done it. Um, but I am not aware of a large study of uh, PCOMs for web. I, all I can say is it's feasible. I don't know what the long-term occlusion rates are. There will be data on that from Europe soon. Uh, what's the largest size we've treated? 
The largest size we've treated is about uh, nine or 10 millimeters. They don't make very large webs. I know that there are some interventionalists that very much want to have uh, very large webs, um, but uh, uh, we just don't have really, really big ones. Uh, I have seen cases of uh, pedunculated aneurysm where a web was placed at the neck, just as I was saying to um, Osama, and then coil was placed in the dome for like a 15 or 20 millimeter aneurysm. I personally haven't done a lot of those. Um, I think I mean, maybe we've done a coil plus web of a 13 or 14 millimeter aneurysm. Um, we do I recommend using web in peripheral circulation? No, <laughs> I don't. I've never done that and I don't know anything about it. So I can't recommend it. Um, but I, you know, if someone does it, I'd be interested in what it looks like. We have a question from uh, Dr. Sibi John from Cleveland Clinic, Abu Dhabi. What about occlusion rates for non-bifurcation aneurysm, such as wide neck and become uh, same as bifurcation? Say, say the question again. I'm sorry. What about um, the, the, what about occlusion rates for non-bifurcation aneurysm, such as wide become. neck become? Yeah, I don't have data. We don't know. There will be some data from Europe on that, but in the US that's an off-label use. So I cannot answer the question. I don't know the answer. Okay. Any other questions I can answer for you? Oh, what about mass occlusion, uh, uh, a mass effect after occlusion of the basilar apex? Um, so uh, I, I, I haven't experienced that. Um, I, I, I think whether you coil or web or, or whatever you use, um, just as I believe an aneurysm heals the way a wound heals, it is possible to get inflammation and mass effect that's worse. I just haven't seen it yet. Any other questions? Dr. Sebi, do you have any question? No, I'm good. Thank you for the wonderful talk. Okay. Well, Osama, I have to get on another webinar in 30 minutes. Maybe we should stop here and I should save subdurals for another time. Yes, what do you yes, think? Please. Yeah, yes, of course. Yes, I know. Yes. Okay, so we have an SNIS webinar in 30 minutes about, um, you know, getting back to normal as we finish uh, COVID. Uh, it's free if, if you'd like to join and, and watch that webinar, but we have a panel that includes Don Fry, um, uh, Mark uh, Rebo from uh, Barcelona, yeah. uh, and Stacy Quintero Wolf, uh, and they're going to discuss some cases. I have one more question here. Did you ever experience premature web detachment or web detached at wrong place? How do you adjust or remove it? So I did, unfortunately, once uh, detach a web and pulled it into the ACOM. Uh, so out of the aneurysm, I was very scared. I can show you the case another time. And I had to push the web back into the aneurysm and by the grace of God, it was okay. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't generally uh, detach prematurely. There are uh, people who have grabbed a web with uh, a gator or with a, um, a snare. So you can use a microvena snare and grab the web and pull it out. So Marcus Holtzman-Sputher, 
who's now uh, in Germany, but, but used to be in uh, Copenhagen, has, has removed some webs using a snare. Um, pushed it back with a wire or the microcatheter. I'd love to show you the case. I actually got uh, an 016 wire against the um, uh, web, and then the 021 catheter over the wire punched into the uh, bottom of the web, and it popped back into the aneurysm. Uh, so uh, like a, a donkey kicking the web back into the aneurysm. It, it worked okay, but it was a very frightening case. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam, very much. Pleasure to see you today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Be safe. Be you safe. too. Bye. 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 Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.